Welcome to episode five of Pollock on Point. No frills, no fancy music, nothing on the walls behind me. We're just talking baseball, and we're doing it with a good friend today, a guy who really is a baseball lifer. He played at Texas. He played in the big leagues for a couple of teams, longtime coach and manager in the minor leagues, longtime big league hitting coach where he is now with the Detroit Tigers. He is Scott Kulbaugh. Cooley, great to see you. It's been a couple of years since we last saw each other. Brad, I'm glad we uh, reconnected, buddy. I'll tell you what, it's been a long time, and uh, you got nothing else better to do than to call me because you're snowed in, snowed in up in New York. (laughs) We've already had snow five of the 11 days this month, and we've already had uh, basically two feet of snow this month. So it's been a long winter already. So you're down in Lakeland, Florida in the sunshine, getting ready to start spring training. And let's start there in terms of how you wound up in Detroit. As I mentioned, you had been with a couple of other teams. Uh, you were with the Orioles 2015 through 2018, the White Sox last year, and now the Tigers. So talk about the process and how much maybe it has changed uh, since you first went into coaching in terms of using your network and, and how you go about finding a job and what that interview process is like to ultimately land in a new place. Yeah, you know, it was unexpected. Uh, you know, got the call of the blue, um, really wasn't uh, looking to go anywhere. I was with Chicago. I already had my uh, contract and was ready to go for 2021. And, you know, out of the blue, AJ Hinch got the job with uh, Detroit, uh, called me up. And obviously they went through the protocols of getting permission and called me up and went through an interview process, but it just didn't stop there and ended up being Zoom calls and, and uh, you know, interview process that um, is a little different than it had been in the past. In the past, it would be one of those that uh, you may be looking for a job or you knew a buddy and they would kind of call and discuss it with the organization. And then they would call you back if, you know, you would get a job or not. So, you know, <clears throat> the things are changing a little bit more. It's, it's a little more time consuming. They're seeing how much you want the job. They want to see how much you're willing to go through the grind, so to speak. And it gives the the other people in the organization a little better feel of who they're bringing on board, if they're going to, you know, mesh in well with the organizations. And, and I don't mind it at all. It's, it's, it's really, you know, getting used to doing these type of things um, helps you as a, as a person, you know, uh, obviously with the pandemic, the way it went, you know, we did a lot of zoom stuff. So, you know, uh, I was already prepared having to do these type of interviews, um, in the past and it's just helped me uh get these jobs moving forward yeah and if it makes you feel any better the job that i just landed and i'm about to start in 10 days i talked to five different people in the company a third-party hr person and also had to put a presentation together for them to see my work so the whole process took an entire month and then i had to wait <laughs> a couple of weeks until i actually wind up starting the job so I, I can understand where you're coming from as well you mentioned uh joining aj henson uh, with this Tigers team last year that went 23 and 35, a, a team that's rebuilding, a team that has some uh, young players that they're kind of counting on to really kind of take them to the next level and take them through the next couple of years. In that situation, how much of a benefit would it be for those type of players to be managed and led by a guy like an A.J. Hinch who won a World Series, has been to the World Series twice and has carved out a pretty distinguished career in the dugout for himself? 
Well, I think it just gives them a, a, a fresh perspective. You know, you, you don't want to say anything poorly about the, the last regime or the regimes in the prior years here. There's sure. been some good baseball in Detroit. They've, they're the blue collar team. They've always been hard nosed team. And, you know, I think that he'll, he'll bring a, a nice mix of a, a little bit more youth um, to connect with those players. You know, he's a younger guy who's had a lot of success in his, his managing days. Uh, he obviously went in a world series with Houston. So, I mean, he brings that instant credibility of winning um, what it takes to win, you know, and, and I think that a lot of young players strive to understand what it does. It is to, to be a major league player, but also to win at the major league level. And so, you know, his, you know, uh, his background will allow them to, you know, get to that point at, at some point, you know, we're going to have to, we're in a little bit of a rebuild, but, you know, he's, he's really good with his words. You know, he's articulate, he's very smart. And I think a lot of guys will gravitate to him because he's, he pays attention to detail and he has those communication skills to, to, you know, that, that project moving forward. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned, you know, the rebuilding and you had a firsthand view of that rebuilding last year being, you know, in the opposite dugout with the White Sox. So you had the chance to look at some of those younger players that I mentioned, guys like Jamer Candelario, Victor Reyes, uh, Willie Castro. How good can these young players be under the tutelage of a guy like A.J. Hinch and with some more experience and, of course, under your tutelage as well? Well, you know, hopefully we don't screw them up. That's the big thing, you know. I mean, Willie Castro had a heck of a year, and, so, and yeah. Candelario was the, you know, organizational player of the year, obviously, at the big league level. So, you know, there's some, some really good talent here. You, they have the number one pick, Spencer Torkelson, who's coming through, Riley Green. I mean, they're, they're having an influx of youth that's coming through the system. I think they're ranked top, top five in baseball in the minor league system. So, you know, you, we saw Casey Mize, Tarek Scooble come up, left-handed pitcher. You know, um, Matt Manning is coming through. There's a lot of good things that are happening here. It's a great time to be in Detroit. I think that, you know, with the tutelage of A.J. and the direction that he has and, you know, the, the relationships that he will build with these young players, I feel the same way with myself. Uh, you know, it was a lot like Baltimore when I had Manny Machado and, and Jonathan Scope coming through. You know, they were youthful players. They have a lot of talent. They just need to be honed in and, and you know, led in the right direction. And hopefully I'm the right person to uh, lead them in that right direction. And, and that's my game plan moving forward. And um, we're expecting good things to happen here in Detroit and the American League Central. It's very tough. Chicago last year, who I was with, was a great team. They've got a lot of youth. They're going to be good for many years. And it's going to, you know, present problems for everybody. But, you know, you have to go through the best to win. And to me, Minnesota and, and Chicago are the teams to beat right now. And we'll see what happens this year. And moving forward, we'll just take it incrementally, step by step. And if we continually just get better and better each and every day, you know, with the talent that's here, I think we have a really good shot at uh, being successful sooner than later. How much does it mean to those young players to have a guy who has achieved so much like a Miguel Cabrera to be there, to help them, to mentor them, to be a resource for them, to be someone that they can just talk to? Well, I mean, you get instant credibility from somebody that's done it already, right? So this guy's going to be a Hall of Famer. We all know that. It's a matter of when he's going to hit the 500 home runs. Um, you know, it could be this year and hopefully it will be because that means he'll have a nice year. Um but he's done that and he, he knows he's been down those roads. He knows, 
the hardships that uh, you go through as a, as a major league player, how to get through those adversities, you know, get back on track. And he knows what it takes to win. He's been on winning clubs. So um, he's a great resource to have for these young players. I think a lot of them are going to gravitate towards him if they haven't already. Um, But at the same time, you got to let allow them to kind of grow as players on their own a little bit and, and have that time. And I think that, you know, my personality, I've had the patience to be able to do those type of things. And that's why this job was so intriguing to me is that, you know, this is an opportunity to take a young club, kind of mold it into hopefully what we feel is a great offense that can help and sustain winning on an every night basis. You mentioned Cabrera approaching 500 home runs and home runs have been a topic of discussion over the last couple of years, a preponderance of home runs, major league record seemingly every year. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the ball, a lot of talk about the sudden fad of the launch angle. Uh, from a hitting coach perspective, how do you kind of view this? And is the, uh, the attention brought to launch angle justified? Has it made that much of a difference over the course of, let's say, the last five, six, seven years in the game? Well, I think it's been talked about as far as the launch angle because, you know, people are talking about, you know, get the ball in the air and sit on the ground. You have the shifts, left-hand hitters with the shifts has really been brutal on them, you know, uh, mm-hmm. taking away a lot of the hits. With man on first, and they're playing in a shift. That hole used to be open, and guys would hook balls in the hole. Even right-handers to, in the game today are getting pull shifts, you know. And, you know, as difficult as it um, it looks, you know, it is. Because you to hit a ground ball the other way is not that easy. You know, everybody says, why don't you don't hit the ball the other way and, and take advantage of it? But – they're kind of gearing themselves to hit the ball in the air and they want to do damage. And, and I think it's hurt a little bit. Um, I think people have taken it to an extreme, you know, where they've made some drastic swing changes. Uh, I think it's allowed pitching to take advantage of that with the high fastball. Um, but in general, you know, they just came out with major league baseball. It's supposed to, you know, say that they did some things with the baseball. It's not going to be as, uh, it's not going to fly as better as good, you know, it may be only three or four feet, who knows how much it's going to affect uh, the players. But, you know, my philosophy is always never get into too much of that. We've always talked about being, you know, a good hitter first, learn, learn, you know, the line drive is the, is the obviously the highest average hit talking about, you know, expected wobas and stuff like that, you know, today, you know, getting on base, and, and finding ways to create runs in other ways than a home run um, is very important because you see in the playoffs, you know, teams are just not banging against the best pitchers. You know, you, you're having to manufacture runs and, you know, it, it's very hard today. And to, to just to kind of bring it into one perspective and say it's launch angle and hitting the home run is all, all the games predicated around. It, it really makes it individualized and you start losing the team aspect. And that's not what fans want to come and see. Fans want to see good brand of baseball. They want to see team play. They want to see their home team <clears throat> have a chance to win on a nightly basis. And, you know, it's very frustrating for the dugout when you're not able to, you're not able to see your, your team execute having a man out third and less than two outs in the infield back and you, and you can't get a man. You have a punch out with a guy over swinging or not having a competitive bat. So completely understand where the, the fan aspect comes into it on when, it, when it's that way. But I think AJ here in Detroit, we're going to really gear ourselves to trying to, 
you know, put a team together that's, you know, geared towards having good team quality at bats, good hitters more than, you know, just going out for power. Yeah. And it's interesting because I guess part of what we were just talking about with the launch angle and, and a lot of home runs being hit is, is part of this cycle, a kind of reactionary cycle, right? Where guys started to pitch and they started to throw the ball higher to try to force the guys at the plate, right. not to be able to try to hit it out of the ballpark. And then the hitters have to counter. So especially with a young team and you see some of the guys who do hit a lot of home runs get paid and they get paid a lot of money. How much do you have to guard against some of those younger guys trying to maybe do too much and trying to go up there thinking, well, I got to hit 40 jacks so I can get paid. Well, you know what? <laughs> it's a fine line. And, yeah. and, and I completely understand that because, you know, the game in itself uh, is, has rewarded right. those people. Um, but also now the game, if you look, a lot of guys aren't getting signed and, and um, you know, having tough times finding jobs. And I think that, you know, over this data that, that it's shown is that, you know, more and more players are striking out more and going for the long ball and they're driving in less runs. Uh, so the production um, is not like it used to be. I mean, you know, if, if it's an all or nothing thing, if you're hitting 40 home runs a year, but you're not driving in a hundred, like what are you doing with those at bats? And I think that's one of the things that players have to understand is like, can I have, there's a, there's a happy meeting where I can show that I can hit for some power, but also, you know, be a productive hitter. And I, and that produces winning type teams. And when you're a winner, there's a lot of teams out there looking for players. Um, they always pick and grab from the teams that are winning, just like coaches. Uh, you're going to pick coaches from the teams that have the, the best winning, winning seasons. <clears throat> when I came from Baltimore, it was a tough time to get a job. When I went to L.A. with the Dodgers, I got a job right away. I went to the White Sox, I got a job right away. I'm not saying that it's not coincidental, but I really believe that winning baseball creates a lot of opportunity. And I think the players need to start to understand that instead of really working on, you know, hoping for the big paycheck because a lot of them are losing their careers because of it. Um, I think it's a it's a fine line. And if they can do it, I'm go, go for it. But once you find out that it's – holding you back or having a hard time finding a job, you may need to rethink a little bit on, you know, what you're trying to do with the plate. Yeah, it's really interesting. And we could probably do a whole nother show on, you know, free agency and guys getting paid and how kind of the quote unquote middle class is getting squeezed out, so to speak. But I did want to follow up and ask you about the buzzword that you brought up data analytics, right? You're an old school guy. You've been around the game for a long time. So as someone who came up through the game without that kind of information, how do you go about trying to use it, interpret it and make the best of it while still balancing what you know and, and what you see with your eyes? Yeah, you know what? It's it's all things that we've seen with our eyes, and now it's just showing with numbers. I mean, it just kind of reinforces what we've been seeing all along. Um, we've always kept track of things um, on paper, but it's really never logged it into a computer or anything like that. And now there's a lot of companies out there like True Media and some other companies that produce this data that we don't have to do it manually. We can just look it up in a touch of a button. But you know, there's things that I've always paid attention to, like swing and miss and in zone, out of zone, um, contact rate, things of that nature. Now we've got hard contact. Now we've got launch angle. We have so many different things we can identify and maybe trying to come up with a plan to solve a problem. And that's really what it's all about is that, you know what, these players are trying to, you know, 
play at the best version of themselves so they can get paid. And at the same time, as a hitting coach, we're trying to utilize tools that can allow them to be the best version of themselves. And some of this data is allowing us to use to show them this is some of the things that are showing up. And, you know, is there some adjustments we can make? So it's all about, you know, solutions to problems. And uh, I, anytime you have something that can make it easier, this data is able to make it easier. It's just got to siphon through it simplify and be able to relay it to the players so they understand it in a way that's not going to, you know, cloud their mind or, you know, bottle them up to the point where they can't be athletes in the box. They got to be clear and, and be athletic and, and let their natural abilities take over. But it's a great tool to use for, uh, to analyze the player. Scott Kolbaugh, Detroit Tigers hitting coach, is our guest here on Pollock on Point. Let's go back, talk a little bit about your career. As I mentioned, you played at the University of Texas, uh, drafted in 1987 by the Rangers, third-round pick. You get to the major leagues two years later as a September call-up. And I ask this question all the time because the stories you hear are always so entertaining and so interesting about how a guy finds out for the first time that he's getting called up to the big leagues. So what was the experience like for you when you found out that you were going to the major leagues? Well, I'll tell you what, I mean, any person that's not ecstatic getting caught the call <laughs> that you're going up to the show is, is unbelievable. But, you know, you have heard some really good stories. I've heard some really good stories of people getting called up. But, you know, for me personally, um, I was in Oklahoma City in uh, 1989, played for a manager, Jim Scalen, who was a tremendous human being. I've had him all the way through my minor league career. He was probably one of the most influential people that, uh, you know, that I was around in the minor leagues that helped me get to the big leagues. If it wasn't for him, a tremendous human being. But, you know, I was in my apartment, called me and said, hey, you're going up in uh, September after our last game. And, you know, um, it was getting ready to pack, go home because I lived, you know, near Dallas. And, and um, you know, it was a three-hour ride. It was very easy. But at the same time, once you get in the car and you start head that way, a lot of things start spinning in your head, you know, uh, where am I supposed to go? Never been to the ballpark. Where <laughs> right. am I staying? You know, what time should I get there? You know, you know, the, it's amazing that you watch from afar when you're a, a coach, that, that player that gets called up for the first time and he's got plenty of time. He's there like five hours before game time. I'm like, what are you doing here? So early coaches don't even get here this early because <laughs> I'm so excited to just to smell the ballpark and, and be around that. And that was for me. I, I just wanted to get there and, you know, get that uniform on and, and go out there and take that first batting practice and get on the field and, and compete. Yes. I, I was with uh, ski when I was with the Brewers in Huntsville, he was the uh, pitching coordinator actually. and was there for a couple of years, got to spend a lot of time with him and uh, really enjoyed it. Definitely, definitely a good guy. So I guess the next follow-up question is, since you mentioned it, you put on that crisp uniform, you get up to the plate for the first time in the big leagues, you, you see this triple decker stadium, you see all the lights, all the people, what is it like? I mean, how, how do you possibly describe that moment as something that you've been striving for and, and working for your entire life? Well, it's kind of like this. Since you're up there in the snow and about 20 degrees and it's, it's it, and it's what 33 inches or so, yeah. go ahead and just walk out there naked, stand in that snow and see your body shiver, and that's how you feel when you're in the box, because it is the most frightening thing you've ever done, and it's something you've done your whole life. But that first time you step in the box, you have shaky knees, you're weak, you can't, you can't slow down. You yeah, can't, yeah. There's no, I mean, 
so many thoughts going through your head. And I remember one time I talked to a second baseman, Jody Reed from the Boston Red Sox. And yeah. I had hit a double and there was a pitching change. And I, he came over and he said, how you doing, Rook? I said, man, I tell you what, I cannot calm down. I'm just, I'm exhausted after every game. The adrenaline is kicking through me. I've never experienced anything like this in my life. He said, don't worry about it. It's taken me three years until wow. I calm down. Yeah. I said, well, I'm glad somebody else goes through it because that's really the, truly what happens is your excitement, your adrenaline every day feels like a new day. And when you hit, hit the hotel, you're out like a light, you know, and you're just exhausted all the time. And until you understand how to control that anxiety, that breathing and calming yourself down, uh, it takes a while. And that's why it's so tough on rookies. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And what, was there anybody in the clubhouse at the time that uh, tried to you know, take you under, your, under their wing a little bit and try to help you with that and try to calm you down and, and try to help you relax? Well, it's funny because we had a good mix in Texas at the time. Obviously, we had one of the you know famous pitchers of all time, yeah. Nolan Ryan, and right. Charlie Huff was there, and we had some veterans, and we had some young guys too. Pete Incavilia and Rafael Palmero were just you know young one and one two year old uh, players in the league. Um, the one guy that I, I felt like kind of tried to help me out was Harold Baines. Harold Baines had been there and great hitter the dh and you know there's only so much you can say right sure. you you have to really experience those things you know people say it all the time we don't know how other people feel until you've been in their shoes right so um they try to do as best they could but at the end of the day it was just more of the learning experience and you know i i finally realized after two or three times getting called up that year or actually i'm sorry the following year that i started to feel more of that relaxation mm -hmm. and playing to my my own level and ability and um unfortunately i got traded <laughs> to san diego at that time but i really started feeling comfortable when i was at texas towards the end yeah how, how does it feel to get traded for the first time i mean you're a guy in this case especially that grew up in texas right you played at ut you get drafted by your hometown team and then the first real kind of bump in the road, I guess, so to speak, comes when you get traded from that organization, hoping, you know, for a chance with another organization. But at the same time, how do you react to that? You, I guess there's kind of mixed reaction where you're saying, well, they gave up on me, but somebody else wants to give me a chance, right? Yeah. Well, first of all, mm -hmm. going back to playing for your hometown team, I think there's a lot of times we don't realize the added pressure Mm -hmm. that you feel sometimes of wanting to succeed, not only from the fact that you're from that state, but you have so many friends and family that you, that have supported you along the way. And then you get there and they're excited for you. And, and when it doesn't work out, obviously, you know, you're, you're a little bit upset and, you know, disappointed. But when I was traded, I felt like there was kind of a, almost a new life so to speak, um, we had Dean Palmer, who was a tremendous player behind me that was coming through. Steve Bouchel was already established at the big league level playing third base. So the Royals are really an opportunity for me there. Um, and when I went to San Diego, you know, they were kind of they didn't really have a third baseman, just to, to be honest. And uh, the other thing is, think about it. I mean, 
who's going to gripe about being traded to San Diego? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, West Coast on the right. beach. I mean, I mean, the sky's the limit there, right? Absolutely. So, you know, so for me, it was a, a new experience and um, uplifting. I was looking forward to it. And, uh, you know, I got a, a great chance to play there in 1991 and, um, you know, really enjoyed my time there, you know. Um, and then, unfortunately, then I got traded again to uh, Cincinnati and um, finally made my way back to the big leagues in 94 with St. Louis. But, um, you know, my road has been a little rough at times, but, you know, I think that's what's built me as a, as a person and character and all those type of things but it's definitely hard on on players to get traded because you, you you build relationships with with people and um you know those go a long ways and you have to start all over again but i think with my road like i said i've been able to build those relationships easier because i've moved so many times whether it's been coaching or playing yeah, it's interesting, too, because you're a guy that, as we just talked about, had big league experience, 1989, 1990, 91. And then the next two years, you play in the minor leagues and don't get to the big leagues. So after tasting it and, and reaching the pinnacle, how tough is it to go back and play in AAA and wonder, am I going to get another shot? Yeah, you know what? I, I think that during that time, there wasn't a lot of talk about like what you needed to do. You know, you were sent down and it was always the same, you know, the same thing of, well, you know, go down there and wait for your next opportunity. And I really tried to had to figure out, like, what is it going to take for me to be successful at the big league level? And I had to figure that out on my own. And those last the next two years really allowed me to do that. And um, in 94, it just kind of clicked. Everything came together. Um, it was great. And, and I, I figured out who and what type of player I was. And I just try to stick to that and never kind of waver from that. And I think that's the biggest thing, too, is that, you know, the transition of players today are getting a lot more information. They're getting a lot more feedback. They're getting a lot more communication with the front office, the coaches, to understand what they need to do and what they need to work on to become major league players. And I, I think that's very helpful. And, and that's something I didn't have uh, when I went through that period. And, and we all kind of figured it out on our own. It's not an excuse. It was just something that we dealt with during that time. And, um, you know, it, it made me the player I am and, and, you know, turned me into the type of coach because I never wanted that situation to happen to any other player. In that 94 season, you get back to the big leagues with the Cardinals, and everybody seems to think that that is arguably the best place to play. Uh, guys who have been traded there have wound up signing long-term contracts to stay with the Cardinals. Everybody that you hear raves about playing there. What makes St. Louis such a great place to play, such a great baseball town? You know what? I think it's just the people. The people are sincere. They root for baseball. They don't necessarily rag on the other team. You know, they have their home team that they, they root for, but, you know, they applaud great play. Um, it's a town that appreciates kind of that blue-collar Midwest player. You know, it's, it's not flashy, goes out there and just finds a way to win. I think people appreciate that. And, um, you know, great ballpark, like I said, a lot of history. They've established that. And, you know, guys gravitate uh, to that type of atmosphere, the type of people, the way they're be treated. 
Um, so it, it's something that uh, you would hope that a lot of teams would kind of follow the steps of, but, um, you know, everybody grows up a little different. And I just think that that area there um, is special. And, you know, uh, Paul Goldschmidt and yeah. you know, players like that have, have raved about being there. Aaron Otto's going to be there now. So we'll, we'll see. But um, Yadier Molina is going back for his 19th yeah. season or 18th season with the organization, which is unbelievable. So uh, just tremendous things to say about St. Louis. I, I appreciated my short period of time there. And, and that season, 1994, was also the season of the strike. And you wound up playing in a game on the last day before the season was shut down. Did you have any sort of idea, any sort of inkling that things would turn out the way they did in terms of the rest of the season being canceled, no playoffs, no World Series, a lot more acrimony before the next season actually got underway, which you actually wound up going to Japan to play in. But yeah. did you have any sort of idea that that was going to be it for 1994 on August 11th? You know yeah, no, we didn't. I mean, there was talk a little bit uh, about what was going on, but the owner shut it down and, you know, we were sitting in Miami, but um, I remember that day because I got to start. <laughs> I was coming off the bench and and playing for Greg Jeffries and Todd Zeal. And for whatever reason, I don't know what happened, but I was playing first base and in Miami, I ended up getting a hit and um, the last play defensively I made, I picked the ball from Ozzie Smith. Mm-hmm. Ozzie Smith at the end of the inning short hopped me a little bit. And I picked it. Of course, you know, I, you know, I got you, Ozzie, don't worry right. about it. But um, <laughs> I went off the field and, and we, we were done, you know, August 12th, it was find your way home. And, you know, the players got together, they rented the plane. We went back to St. Louis. And like you said, um, we, we didn't know what was going to happen and the season got shut down. There was expectation of possible restart and then they ended up not having any playoffs, no world series that year. Um, so the GM, um, we had a new GM change and, um, ended up getting was Walt Jockety and he ended up uh, trading me to uh, Japan that winter. And I got a phone call saying that, um, your contract's been sold. What was that experience like? I guess in some ways it gives you an appreciation of what it's like for the Latin players to come to America, right, and find their way, maybe not being able to speak the language very well, not being able to go into a restaurant and order. So how difficult was it to get acclimated to the culture, uh, to the different style of play, and then be in a place where there were probably a lot of people that you were with on a daily basis. And when you went into, uh, you know, life outside the stadium that couldn't speak English and it was hard to communicate with. Yeah, you know, and, and, and during that time, I was shocked to get traded because yeah. I felt like I found a home and, and found a role for myself. I was, like I said, I had found myself as a player. I knew what I wanted to do. Um, and to get that phone call was shocking, not only to get, you know, moved, but going to Japan. So I had to do my research. I got a bunch of tapes. Uh, you know, it was eye-opening. It was different. You know, there's no grass on the field, on the infield. It was all skin in the field. And um, just the style, I kind of like was taken back a little bit and, you know, went over there thinking, okay, I can do one of two things. I can bitch and moan about this, or I can, you know, throw my hands up, open arms and, and try to indulge in the culture. And, and that's exactly what I did. I went over there and open mind and you know, I'm glad I did because um, it gave me a chance to really dive into the culture, try to 
fit in with the players. Um, it was a lot of work. It, it, it was uh, nights that was sometimes grueling in mentally. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, I look back and say, I'm glad I did that. And I really, really enjoyed my time there. I had a great year. My first year came back my second year. We had some managerial change and I got moved on and, you know, eventually came back to Korea. But, you know, to this day, my coaching um, has really been geared around having that patience, having that understanding, understand that I've got to explain things a little more thoroughly to players because we assume, we assume they know, they nod their head when you're talking you know, and you assume they get what you're saying and they really don't. It's just that they don't want to be, you know, I didn't want to be looked at as I got to pull you aside from the whole group, you know, and that was something that was nerve wracking to me. So I just try to figure it out, you know, and to this day now I try to make sure that I let players know and see their body language where, you know, he, I know he doesn't understand. I got to pull him aside and make sure I explain things to him, things that, that um, it's going to make him feel comfortable. And I think that's the biggest takeaway I got from playing overseas. You mentioned playing in Korea as well. How much of a difference is there in the style of play in Korea compared to Japan? Well, there's a different style in the sense that it's probably not as powerful at times. Um, you know, their players, at a level of play is probably a touch below. And I hate saying that, but you got to remember when I was there and in that time, I, we had some tremendous players in Japan, Ichiro Suzuki. We had uh, Sasaki, the closer for Seattle. We had uh, Matsui, the first baseman for the, the, the Yankees that ended up playing in a world series. And, the Onomo was coming up through. I mean, we had some, there were some players there that uh, really tested your ability. And I felt like it was almost a, a, a smaller version of the major leagues, really. When I went to Korea, my eyes were a little bit different. It was a different, uh, they were, didn't throw as hard, um, probably not as powerful, um, played the same style, a lot of bunting and, and things of that nature. But um, level of play was probably a touchdown. But at the same time, it was a different culture. I still had to learn a new culture. Right. still had to try to work my way into getting these guys to understand me as a human being, feel comfortable around me. And I had a great time there. I, I can't say anything poorly about it because we won a championship. And, you know, winning takes care of everything, right? I can imagine if I lost 100 games in Korea, like, would, right. I, ha- would I still have that same – response but at the end of the day the appreciation of going over there those experiences helped me today so I'm very appreciative of that but at the same time having that opportunity to win for the first time in that in that setting with them um, was gratifying because I saw how much they appreciated it and how much they wanted me to be a part of that and so it was it was tremendous yeah and you come back to the United States the following year, 1999, start off in AAA, come down to the AA level in El Paso with the Diamondbacks and ultimately decide uh, shortly before the season ends that that's it, playing career is done. How difficult is it as a player to take off that uniform for the final time? 
at that time I was in a crossroads. I really was I 99. I came back and, and I tried one more opportunity to see if I could get back to the big leagues. Sandy uh, Johnson was in the front office with the Arizona Diamondbacks, who I knew from Texas. I called him up and I asked him, I said, give me a shot to come in and win a minor league position. Uh, he, you know, granted me that. And then I came in and, um, I played pretty well in spring training and, and got a chance to play in AAA. However, uh, Robo du, um, no, Durazo um, came up and uh, another young player, Patterson, um, were two young players that were coming through. And, and they told me, they said, look, you know, we want you to go to AA to be a player coach, see if you'd like to coach. And at that time, I said, you know, I think I'm ready to coach. And I went to double A and I played for Don Wakamatsu and um, Ty Van Berkeley was a hitting coach and actually was hitting pretty well. And they kept telling me, you know, we have another player coming from a ball that as soon as he gets here, we're, you're going to get into your coaching aspect. And I said, okay, that's great. And I kept hitting and hitting and, and, and Ty Van Berkeley said to me, he says, you sure you want to give it up? I said, when does he get here? I need to I'm done. I'm over it. And so I went into the instructional league that year. After that season, they invited me to instructional league to manage the instructional league club. Got an opportunity to do that. And I told Tommy Jones, the minor league director, and Bobby Dickerson, who I played with, um, who was the field coordinator at the mm -hmm. time, um, hey, I'm all in. I'd like to do this. And that's when my coaching career set off and Good old uh, high desert, California. Yeah, 1999, El Paso is where we first crossed paths. And, and one thing that definitely sticks out from those road trips is your luggage with all the stickers from Korea and Japan on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, that stuff, I was using bats from yeah. the, the time. I mean, it was four-year-old bats that, uh, yeah. that I was using. But you know what? Um, the equipment they had were, was incredible. And um, I don't know, maybe I just, maybe I held on to it, you know, because I enjoyed it uh, as much as I did. But, you know, the, you know, getting an opportunity to coach and then going to El Paso and meeting yourself and, and being around people like you in the game on the coaching aspect and, you know, doing these interviews and talking baseball and really kind of, you know, using that dialogue to help me improve as a, as a coach is really appreciative and you know, that's why I talk to you today. I mean, those are like you talk about, the, you know, Jackie Moore used to tell me all the time, you know, being in baseball, it's all about relationships. You know, it's building relationships with players, it's building relationships with, with people, uh, coaches, uh, and, and it goes a long ways. And, and um, you know, that's why I've been very fortunate and, uh, to be able to be in this situation as long as I have been. And again, meeting people like yourself. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, great to catch up with you and talk to you about some of that kind of stuff. It's funny. I was home last weekend uh, for my birthday with my parents and I was telling them the season that you were the manager that I was in your office. I think we were in Wichita and you were going over the signs and I had asked you if you wanted me to leave. And you said, no, it's fine. You know, no problem. I don't, I don't mind if you know the signs. So what I started to do was knowing the signs, start to predict what I thought you were going to do in the game based on knowing the signs. And then after a couple of days, maybe a week or so of that, my broadcast partner, Matt Hicks, started to pick up on that. And then he turns to me on the air. And he says, wait a minute, you know the signs, don't you? <laughs> I, 
okay, we'll see. That's the trick of the trade. You know, yeah, exactly. and again, you know, those are the fun moments. And, exactly. you know, you look back and, you know, all the, the, the hardships that you have as far as, you know, when you watch teams that struggle a little bit and you have to go up there on a nightly basis and, you know, you're, you're on the air and you got to make some light of it or be positive about it. And it's very hard, but um, you know, having those opportunities to, to talk with you, like I said, and, and let you join in and have a little bit of insight on what we do in baseball. I mean, you know, those are the things that help us bring us all together as a family Definitely. and, uh, makes it a lot more fun when we travel together and we have those discussions, uh, you know, uh, around the around the clubhouse or at the bar at the, with a beer, you know. So no question um, about that. We only did that once or guys. twice, though. No, no. I mean, you know, <laughs> that year was a little rough. We got to remember now. I didn't know if I was managerial, you know, uh, potential or not because I was like, is this how it really is? Because I think I'll go back to the hitting thing. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because one of the other things that always uh, stood out to me from that year as well, and, and I do want to talk to you about managing and some of the influences maybe that you had, but, you know, and it might have even been in Wichita again, where, you know, you said to me, look, I can do everything that I can do the right way by the book, bring, you know, make a pinch hitting mover, bring this relief pitcher in at this particular time but yet it ultimately falls to the performance of the player. So if I make the move, which I think is the right move and the player does not come through and does not deliver, it ultimately falls back on me, even though he was the one that didn't get the job done. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that you learn over time is that you, you get so caught up in if, should I have done this, you know, could I have done this differently? Uh, what about this scenario? And you talk about it and you go through it and you in after uh, every night of the ball game and you rehearse, you know, recall. Yeah. And what would I have done differently? Right. And through the years, you find out like this isn't about you. It's about, you know, the players and the players are the ones that perform. And all you can do is try to get them prepared the best you can on a nightly basis. So when that situation comes up, and you call on somebody or you ask somebody to do something or you make a pitch and change that you feel in your heart, you're putting them in the best situation possible because you know they're prepared. And then it's up to the player. And, and, and you've got to allow, allow that to let go, right? Yeah. You kind of kind of flush it, you forget about it, and you move on to the next day. Because if you don't, it starts to eat at you and eat at you and eat at you. And then it starts to – cloud your judgment on what you should be doing and you may end up you know holding back of making a move you know because you're a little hesitant because it didn't work the last time and and I think that's the wrong part of uh, of coaching is you know you got to trust your instincts sometimes you got to trust the data that's out there nowadays and you got to go with it and and uh, whatever happens you got to feel good about it you know we talked a lot about your career the different places you've been and obviously playing in as many different places as you had, you came across a lot of managers that you played for. A couple of them very well known, Joe Torre in St. Louis, Bobby Valentine in Texas. When you look back at those two guys and maybe some of the other guys that you had the opportunity to play for, how much of what they did and what you learned from them uh, became a part of how you managed and now, as you alluded to earlier, kind of how you deal with players on a daily basis? Well, I mean... Honestly, you know, coming up through with the Texas, I had Bobby Valentine, like you mentioned. 
tremendous, you know, coach, manager. Uh, he's been, he did it a long time. He had a lot of success. I particularly didn't have the most success with him because I felt like he was a little bit harder on the rookies mm -hmm. or younger players. Didn't feel that dialogue. Didn't feel like that communication was there. Um, there was some tension. It was probably a lot towards me also that, you know, I put on myself being a rookie and, and being from Texas and trying to perform at Texas. So there was a little combination of both. And I just never really felt comfortable. Um, but that's not to say that Bobby wasn't a great manager. I mean, he did a lot of things. He had good relationships with the media he had a good relationship with players. You know, um, I just, for whatever reason, didn't have a lot of success under his tutelage. I went to San Diego and Greg Riddock, Greg Riddock was a uh, young manager right. and he was more of a psychologist. He was more of a guy that uh, kind of communicated with you, um, but probably not the best X's and O's guy when it came down to, you know, the game. So um, you felt a little more comfortable, but at the end of the day, you questioned some things that might happen. Um, and then I played for Joe Torrey and the respect factor was, was there. I mean, uh, very humble man, quiet, uh, but at the same time, he knew exactly uh, what your job was. He, he, you know, he knew the game. He stayed out of the way. He was a player's manager. And um, I think that's why he had a lot of success in New York. Uh, once he was established with a lot of really good talent, you know, he was able to sustain winning because he did stay out of the way. And, um, you know, and that's why he's running things now. But it's funny how you run into different managers and different managers, how they they kind of uh, mold you as a person, so to speak. And you take bits and pieces from everyone. And I think that's just part of the learning curve. And, you know, there's some players that can overcome it. And then there's some players that can't. So that's why you see a lot of times in the game today that um, it's so important to find that manager that can have that right mix and communication with players because, you know, you, you've got to touch everyone. Scott Kulbaugh, our guest here on Pollock on Point. Let's fast forward a little bit, uh, take you to 2011, where you joined the Rangers kind of mid-season as a hitting coach, a season that wound up uh, <laughs> oh so close to tasting <laughs> that championship. But let's go back to that time in June during that season. I, I, is it somewhat similar to getting traded, let's say, in the middle of a season where you join a new club and you have to kind of find your way as compared to stepping into a situation where you take over as the hitting coach and you kind of have to establish yourself and, and also kind of be an observer to a degree as well to kind of see what had been happening, what the guys were doing, and then try to react from that? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say it's so much like the trade. I would say it's more like getting called up for the first time, okay. you know, because, you know, you're in a different realm. It's coaching. You, you want to get to the big leagues as a coach. You want the opportunity to coach at the highest level. And, I mean, here I am, my first opportunity back in Texas, just like my first opportunity as a player. And the one thing that I took was my experiences from a player. I said, you know, I'm not going to allow myself to get all tied up and, you know, stress about things. I'm going to go there. I'm going to try to build relationships. I'm going to try to, you know, do whatever I can to help the players uh, be as ex successful as the as they can be. At the time, we're playing like 500 ball. You know, we were hitting like 270, 260 as a team. Not too bad. You know, hanging in there right in the middle of things. And, 
you know, I felt like that when I came in there, that type of attitude, that, that release of uh, just kind of letting guys do their thing and, and supporting them really got them back on track. And, you know, we had tremendous success the rest of the year and, and hit um, the playoffs uh, with all cylinders. I mean, we were going at, you know, we played some great teams. We ended up playing Tampa, you know, and then getting through them that we went to Detroit, Detroit came in and, you know, uh, you know, you have Miggy and all those guys and, and Verlander, Scherzer, uh, Nelson Cruz. It's a big, I think it was a grand slam off of, uh, Verlander in Detroit. I mean, it just so many things that click. And then, you know, we play in St. Louis. You've got Albert Pujols, who was, you know, the Mike Trout of the world at the yeah. time. And this guy was all world, took over teams. Yeah, he had three home runs in one game right. in, the, in the World Series. And, and it was just a tremendous uh, time to experience your first time as a major league coach. You go to the World Series. I thought I'm gonna be like Michael Jordan and, and and retire at the top. And I had a manager, Bobby Jones, Triple A. You know, he's sitting there and he called up in the in the playoffs and he said, "I bet she says, hey son, you're gonna be a little bit richer after this.'" And I said, "Dang it, Bobby, you jinxed it." I said that next the next pitch, the ball was hit over Nelson Cruz's head, and then uh, you know we came back and you know. Josh Hamilton hit a home run, and then obviously David Freeze took over, hit the extra inning home run, and then the next game uh, they pretty much took it to us. But to have that experience, my first year to go all the way to the World Series, I think uh, there's nothing like it. A couple of quick follow-up stories to what you just said before I ask you the next question: Bobby Jones and Spike Owen were the ones that actually got me to watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. I mean, Bobby Jones, I mean, let me tell you something. You've never, you have, but nobody will ever forget meeting a man like that. I mean, That's this sure. man is a tremendous human being. He has stories. He makes you laugh. Uh, he can get in your ass and, and fire you <laughs> up in a way that you you don't have resentment toward him. I've never met a man that could yell at somebody. And somebody's almost be laughing with them the next minute because there was no resentment to him, but they understood him. You know, uh, he's a tremendous human being and I was grateful to be around him. So that's funny me, that you game of Thrones. Yeah. It's funny. Another Bobby Jones story. So 2013, I'm in Omaha. We win the PCL. We win the triple a championship. The Rangers come to Kansas city in September, their only visit. So I drive down there to go see Matt Hicks and I meet Matt at the hotel and Bobby's sitting on a bench outside the entrance to the hotel. And I had my um, championship ring from 2011 when we won the PCL. And he goes, let me see that thing. He goes, man, that thing's a piece of shit. You guys better get a bigger <laughs> ring for winning the AAA national championship. <laughs> yeah, <And> we did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, I mean, he's a treat. Let me tell you something. Yeah. If I don't think any, like you said, you say things, something about somebody and you expect it to be that way, but you can never experience it until you're around the man. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you a quick Nellie Cruz story that also involves Don money. So my first year in Huntsville, 2005, uh, the Brewers had just picked up Nellie from the uh, A's, I guess. Yes. And yeah, 
we, we start the year on a seven-game road trip. We go to Jacksonville for four games. We get shut out the first night by Josh Johnson. He knocks in the only run of the game. We lose one nothing. Second night, we lose. We score one run on a Nelly home run. Third day, we get shut out. Fourth day, we get shut out. Sunday afternoon. Now we got to drive from Jacksonville to Raleigh, North Carolina. The bus leaves without me. <laughs> <laughs> 15 minutes the later, they, right, exactly, <laughs> of course, right? 15 minutes later, they circle back and I walk on the bus and I had just moved to Huntsville literally like 10 days before the season started. So barely had a chance to get acclimated, really didn't speak to Don very much. I get on the bus and he has the ass like you would not believe. <laughs> he gives me the death stare. I got a fucking 10 hour ride to Raleigh, North Carolina, right? I'm sorry, from, from Raleigh to Jacksonville. <laughs> we go to Jacksonville. We lose the first night in the bottom of the ninth, give up the lead in the bottom of the ninth, win the second night, lose the third game. Now we're one and six, and we got a 10-hour ride back to Huntsville, and the same thing happens. The bus <laughs> leaves without me again. <laughs> they got to come back, <laughs> and money's got the ass like you wouldn't believe. And uh, it took me about a month before we finally like solidified oh, our I relationship. Bet. And then, then it was great from there on. I mean, <laughs> I had a great four years with him. That first road trip was arguably like seven of the most painful days I ever had. In I bet. <laughs> Especially you have some older school managers that, yeah. you know, if you're a minute late, the bus has been down the road about two miles. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was so funny. But anyway, to get back to the topic at hand, those Texas Rangers in 2011 with Nelly Cruz and, and you mentioned Josh Hamilton and, and he put up some numbers that were phenomenal, despite the fact that he had some very well chronicled problems. He did some real damage to his body. When you look at him and saw what he could do, could you ever have imagined what he could have done had he been healthy and not kind of been his own worst enemy? Some of the things that he could have accomplished. Yeah, I mean, it's it was incredible because in 2010, he was MVP, yeah. uh, 350, and just kind of hit the tip of the iceberg with Clint Hurdle. Then I came in at 11, and he did damage again. And, you know, the sound the ball makes off the bat is incredible. Um, the guy can run like a deer. He can throw. Um, he was the epitome of what you call a five tool player this guy i mean he had it all and you were like oh my gosh why didn't we have him at 23 you know 24 you had him at the end of his career like you said he went through some issues personally and you know physically because of those things and you know it was it was a sad way to end his career once he went to the angels in 2000 after the 2012 year but, you know, I was very fortunate enough to be around him when he was at his, his best, um, you know, and his healthiest at the time. And even though it seemed like he was healthy, he was always nagged by injuries and, and things of that nature. But um, to watch him hit four home runs in Baltimore that night was a special night. And to see some special moments from players, especially something like that from Josh, um, is, is – is, it's very gratifying and it's like you kind of pinch yourself sometimes because he's like did I really get to experience all these things and uh very fortunate yeah he came to Omaha on a rehab 
and uh, we're doing like a group media interview with him in the dugout and he's sitting on the uh, bench in the dugout and there's about five or six of us around him and I'm kind of off to his left and he's got a wad in and all of a sudden he turns and he spits and he misses my shoe by like an inch. <laughs> and like two minutes later, he does it again. And I'm like looking at him like, what are you doing? I couldn't say anything in the middle of the media interview, but I'm like, you realize I'm standing right here and you're <laughs> basically spitting on my shoes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what, Josh, Josh was, Josh was a, a great person. Um, you know, it was some of the issues that you had to deal with that um, made it somewhat difficult. Um, but overall, um, I can honestly say it was a pleasure to have the opportunity to be uh, around him for two years. And he hit a home run in that fateful game six that actually put you guys ahead after you had blown the lead two different times in that game six in yeah. the world series in 2011 you are literally a strike away from winning the world series unfortunately as you mentioned nelly doesn't play the ball all that well in right field you come to game seven you actually take the lead and then wind up losing how difficult is that to recover from what happened in game six to then try to come back the next day and win in a do or die game seven and then ultimately lose that game and not have that championship that was, I mean, literally like right there that you could probably taste it. Right. You know what? I think it's different for everybody, but you know what? That team was very resilient. Um, they had some really good players, but the type of players that were mentally tough, you had Michael Young and yeah. Ian Kinsler and, and, you know, a lot of these guys that were able to pick themselves up from the bootstraps and, um, you know, Mike Napoli was there, was a the hard-nosed grinder, Adrian Beltre, you know, Elvis was still young. So I think the guys, you know, Kobe Lewis had to come back from, you know, Japan and pitch. And, you know, we had the right mix. And when we went into 2012, um, we had the same attitude. We were going back, you know, and it all struck the other way late in the season in September when we lost that pennant against Oakland. We lost it down the stretch. We weren't playing well, and we limped into the playoffs. And I think that at that point, there was kind of this determination or this, you know, not determination, but just kind of this thing where it just wasn't there. It just the feeling of this ball club had to be split up. It had to move on and go in different directions. So you saw the Josh Hamilton leap to the Angels and, you know, players started going in a different direction. You saw Ian Kinsler being traded and Michael Young ended up being moved to Philly. And, you know, so I think that, you know, at that point there was a determination of, Hey, you know what? It's not going to work. Like that last part in Oakland, losing the pennant and then going and limping in the playoffs and losing that, that wild card game against the, the Orioles who we should have never lost to. Uh, in my mind, um, was definitely devastating at the end. But I think that, you know, losing those two World Series back-to-back -back in 10 and 11, guys' mindsets were, were on point from that next spring training in 12 all the way through. And I think it just hit the roadblock in, at, at that one last hiccup in, in uh, Oakland. We lost four in a row. Yeah, 2012, you actually are let go by the Rangers as well. You get back to the big leagues. Oh, bring up that there, well, <laughs> Pollock. I mean, 
well, you talked about the change, so <laughs> I guess I should have said you were part of the change. Right, um, right. You come back in 2015 and you come back to Baltimore and you come back with Buck Showalter, who you had worked with in Arizona. And one of the guys that was on that team in Baltimore was Chris Davis, who had an unbelievable 2013 season, right? 53 home runs. He knocks in 138 runs. He hits almost 290, does about half of that in 2014. You come in in 2015 and he gets back to 47 homers, 117 ribbies. How much of an influence did you have on Chris Davis that year, the next year? And then what happened with him kind of dropping off again those last two years you were in Baltimore? Right. Well, honestly, I felt like I had a lot of influence toward, towards his career at the beginning. Um, you know, I had known him from double A. Right. Um, with the Rangers, he came up with the Rangers a little bit, then got traded to, to Baltimore. But at that time, like a lot of players, you know, you've built a relationship with a certain hitting coach that you, you know, you talk to. And, you know, I was talking to Chris still um, during those times. I was a hitting coordinator with the Rangers and um, been in AAA. And he, he was over in, in Baltimore and, and we would talk. So I knew that he was going through some of the issues that he went through in 14. Um you know, we visited that winter in the 14 and, and, you know, it came up that I was getting an interview with the Orioles in December of, of 2014 and to join him in 15, I think gave him kind of a, a new breath of life, so to speak, um, to overcome some of the, the obstacles that he was faced with in 14 at the end personally and uh, the suspension and all that kind of stuff. So he was ready to go. He was, he was ready to go. He was going to make something of it. He was going to help me as a coach uh, going out there performing, and he did. You know, he led the league in homers. He had 47 homers, I think it was, and drove in 120 runs. And everybody was like, Chris Davis is back. This is, you know, great year again, and they paid him. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it turned the next year – think that there was a little bit of pressure trying to live up to the contract, but he still hit 38 homers. He, he drove in like 80 something to 90 runs and did pretty well. And, um, you know, we ended up going to the playoffs, right. You know? And so everything was, Hey, this is, this is not too bad. And, you know, I think after that, it kind of just turned, uh, it, um, I don't know if it was physical, um, Things just don't seem to be the same as they were. Um, kind of started to notice some things that you were kind of worried about as far as, um, you know, stuff that he wasn't doing that he'd done in the past. And, and it just kind of caught up to him. And I think that, um, you know, over those last four years have been pretty tough on him. Another guy who very vocally gave you credit was Manny Machado, who you had briefly mentioned before. What was it like working with him at that tender young age where he was so demonstrably talented and, I guess, impressionable? Well, and he was another one. You know, he came off 14 where he was hurt. Yeah. You know, he hurt his knees, and he went in the offseason trying to strengthen things back up. He had a new hitting coach. Uh, so he came into spring training kind of – ready to go. And it was more of me just trying to build a relationship with him. You know, my first year, it was pretty much hands off. I didn't really say a whole lot to him. He got off to a great start. He was on an MVP pace at the beginning. And, you know, uh, he finished up uh, pretty well. 
And then, you know, our relationship started to really kick in in 16. And in 16, we really kind of, that's when we we started having a lot better dialogue and, and talking and his trust in me. And But, you know, when you have an opportunity to work with players that can do things so naturally, you know, it, it, it just, it, it's gratifying because it, it's easy, you know? I mean, it's just one of those things where you, you just won't wake up tomorrow and say, I wish I could find another Manny Machado. I wish I could find another Josh Hamilton, you know? With Chris, Chris wasn't the same as those two. Chris, it came with work. It came through, you know, hard heartache and, 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 and really getting down to the nitty gritty. And with those other guys, it was just such a natural talent that there was only little things that you had to say to them to keep them back on track. And, and that's what it made uh, it a little bit easier. Uh, you kind of alluded to it, I guess, at the beginning of the conversation that last year in Baltimore, 2018 was pretty rough. So 2014, the Orioles have been in the playoffs, 2016 while you were there. And then 2018, you guys don't even win 50 games. How difficult is that to go through a 162 game season where, you know, in a lot of cases, you're probably overmatched in a lot of nights and, you know, you're going to the ballpark thinking that eh, probably going to be another one in the L column tonight. Well, you know what, it was, it was funny because the, the mystique around Baltimore was that we were the, the even number year team, 12, they right. had the great year, the great run. 14, they did another great run when they almost got to the World Series and got beat by Kansas City. Yeah. 16, we got into the playoffs against Toronto. So it was 18, here we go, you know. Everybody was excited and coming into spring training. And, you know, we had a few injuries and a couple things hit here and we got off to a rough start. And next thing you know, there was, you know, there were some issues going on and Dan Duquette decided that he was going to, you know, they were going to trade the players away. We weren't going to be able to re-sign Manny. And, you know, eventually those guys were traded. And once we lost some of the core players, you know, the, the team kind of just went through, not going through the motions. I shouldn't say that because you hate to say or assume that a player was going through the motions, but we just didn't have the capability to compete in the American league East. And, you know, it was some rough nights. There was nights that we weren't scoring a whole lot of runs. You know, we lost some of our best hitters. Um, you know, Chris was, was, was really in a bad funk, you know, slumping. And the only player we really had was, you know, uh, Adam Jones. And we kind of relied on him. J.J. Hardy had, had gotten hurt. And there was just so many things that went on. Weeders had moved on, you know, to, to Washington. And it just – it was one of those things where, where we just – we didn't have enough to compete in the American League East. Yeah, and Buck Showalter, I mentioned before, you know, you have a long history with him. We talked about some of the other managers that you had played for, their impact, their influence on you. When you look at Buck, is there – a way that you can kind of quantify and, and, and really describe the impact and the influence that he's had on you in your career? Tremendous person. I mean, uh, you, you get these, you know, he gives this persona that he's pretty hard and he's, 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 you know, doesn't, you know, give you the time or day or anything like that. But this is one of the most intelligent people that I've met in the game. He knows the game, like the back of his hand, he's detailed. He's organized. He, he can do so much for an organization when it comes down to, 
you know, building it up. Um, you know, I learned a tremendous amount from him, how he handled people, how he was able to maintain keeping the media from the, the players, separating that, not, not calling out players, things of that nature. And like, you know, just in-game stuff that I learned, watched him on how he handled a bullpen, how he ran a bullpen, those type of things. Uh, you know, he was tough to work for because he, he was demanding. Mm-hmm. You know, he wanted his coaches to be as detailed and organized as he was. He wanted them to be on point and understand everything that he did. And if you didn't, you know, he would call you out on it. And rightfully so, uh, you know, I would rather work for somebody like that uh, to keep me on my toes because I know it's going to make me a better person and a better coach in the long run. And, you know, um, I appreciate it very much. I, I grew a lot uh, being in Baltimore for the four years that I was there. I would be remiss before we wrap things up here in a couple of minutes without asking you about your brother. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away uh, due to the accident on the field, and that's had a tremendous impact on the game. There was a foundation that you started. Uh, talk about that in terms of what the foundation has been able to do to help uh, young players, you know, amateur players who who want to get involved in the game, and also the the meaning you know, what now, 13, 14 years later for you and, and your relationship with your brother? Yeah, it's going to be coming up 14 years this year. And, you know, it's about 12 years now that we've started that foundation, Diamond Dreams. Um, James Valade, who was a coach with us in, in AA at that time, uh, was a fourth coach. And he, he really was instrumental in helping us in doing something that um, – you know, it was keeping my brother's name in the game. You know, they have the Mike Kubal Day and the Texas League every year around July 22nd, I believe it is. Tulsa usually does something. Um, there's some teams, Frisco, they recognize that day. And it's very special, um, you know, very important for us to keep his name going. But, you know, he gave his life in the game. He was a lifer. I'm a lifer. Um uh, knock on wood, I hope I, I can hang on, but uh, I feel like that, um, you know, baseball and my family has, has, has been there forever. And my son is now involved in it with the Texas Rangers. He's down in Dominican uh, as the hitting coach there for the, the, the Rangers. But what we did was we, you know, because of the situation, we put the foundation together to have kind of put forth the safety in baseball and, you know, understanding that a lot of these high schools and uh, they don't have the safety features and the money to be able to, you know, have netting and, and uh, batting cages and proper equipment sometimes. And so what we've done is really try to raise money to bring awareness to safety and uh, whatever we can do uh, to give back to some of the schools. We've, we've donated some scholarship money uh, in Mike's name to uh, kids that want to continue their baseball career. Um, and so it's been something tremendous that we really made it a kind of more of a community thing that we have just worldwide where we just branch it off to every, every uh, team that I've been with, so to speak. But, um, you know, uh, it's unfortunate that, you know, baseball has put in a, the helmet rule, uh, because of that, but it is a reminder and, and, you know, um, if people want to get involved, like I said, it's dominddreams.org and, um, 
they can donate money. And like I said, it, it goes to great causes uh, regarding safety in baseball and giving back to kids. And a lot of times what we try to do is we try to pinpoint some kids, uh, the pre-med kids that uh, lost the family member that, um, you know, they want to continue and we help that mother or father out. Yeah, I remember your son tagging along with you at the ballpark all those years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> knee high and, yeah, you know, yeah. little scrawny kid. And he was out there hitting all the time and running around the field. But, you know, that's, you know, one of the greatest things. And in and, and our name, the Kubal name, and that's it's become a baseball name now. I mean, yeah, for sure. My brother to myself and now my son. Uh, it's it's in- interesting how uh, we've been institutionalized, so to speak, in the game of baseball. Let me ask you one more question and then I'll let you go because I know it's getting late for you and you got to get up early and get some things done at spring training tomorrow. And it's funny, we went through this entire interview talking about your career and didn't really talk about what you went through last year, which was something completely different than what you're used to, right? Uh, One of the things about baseball players, baseball coaches, they're very much creatures of habit and routine. And that routine got completely undone last year due to COVID, right? You go through spring training about two weeks before the season's going to start. It gets interrupted. You're not sure when it's going to resume. Ultimately it does in late July, but with a lot of restrictions, you can't do the things that you're used to doing. You can't spend as much time at the ballpark as you're used to. What was it like going through all those procedures and protocols and not having as much interaction face-to-face with the guys that you're used to? That's really one of the joys of the game is that camaraderie being around the guys all the time. And yeah. You couldn't do it last year. Yeah. I mean, it was difficult because, you know, you go into spring training and you expect the season to be like all the others. We start up and, you know, start the season in April and all of a sudden middle of March, we get this call that, you know, spring is shut down. We don't know how long there's a pandemic. We don't know what this virus is uh, trying to figure things out. We all get sent home and, you know, we come back for the second spring training and it was, you know, the protocols, the testing, the, the mask wearing, the social distancing, uh, not able to go to restaurants, not able to hang out with guys uh, um, and do those social things to get to know them and build those relationships with them is very difficult. Uh, we had, you know, small groups working together at a time and it was, it wasn't as a, a one big team. And, and so, it was definitely a difficult situation, but, you know, after a while, after a week or two, you start to get used to it. You start to adapt. And it's like anything else in baseball, you know, people have always had to make an adjustment, right? We've asked players as coaches to make an adjustment during the season. Uh, this is an adjustment in life. It was difficult, like I said, because it's not our norm, right? When we get out of our normal routine, like you say, we get cranky, you know, uh, <laughs> You know, where's this? I don't know where that is. I can't do this anymore. And so we start complaining and we start bringing up things. And that's one of the good things that Rick Renteria did a great job of is that he eliminated any of the noise and and the bitching and complaining about what was going on because we all agreed to do it, right? We all agreed to come back and and be a part of this thing and make it happen. And, and, you know, uh, I think it's very important to understand that, you know, players are willing to – go a long ways to to play this game you know they they come from different countries to play it but to go through a situation like last year 60 games a lot of pressure on them to perform some of the contracts were up some big contracts and you know these guys felt the pressure of 
of doing some things, but the routines definitely uh, took a toll on players. And, and um, you know, this year's a new year, but we're still in the same situation. I'm here in spring training and we're still going through the same protocols as of now. And um, it's a little easier because we've done it before. And that's about the only reason why it's okay, <laughs> but um, I hate it. And I'm hoping this thing goes away. I don't know if you can, what you can do Pollock, but you better do something. <laughs> make the game come back to normalcy. All right. I'll, I'll do my best. And I'm sure Bobby never got cranky during last year, right? <laughs> oh, let me tell you something. There's, there's uh, so many calls that you get and just saying, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And um, this better go away. We've got to do something different. Um, so it was definitely tough. And, and, uh, but you know what? The players are resilient. They're yeah. resilient and, and they go out there and they perform and, with no fans. I mean, I did right. it. Yeah, it, I didn't it, even mention it, it. Yeah, that's unprecedented right. in, right. in Baltimore against Chicago of all teams, right. you know, and right. here I am doing it every day in Chicago and there's yeah. no fans. And the only thing we have is the speaker and the, and you know, the intercom to make noise like a crowd noise, you know, and there's only so much you can do. And so, you know, again, um, we got through it. It was a great time in Chicago because we made the playoffs, you know, first time in 12 years. Yeah. So that made things better. And like I said earlier, when we we're talking, winning takes care of everything, right? Absolutely. No question about it. Well, listen, man, this was amazing. Uh, I'm so glad we got to do this. Talk about your career, reminisce a little bit. And uh, hopefully when the Tigers come to New York in late April, early May, we'll have the opportunity to do it face to face, no mask, and uh, hopefully have a cold one to uh, – reminisce a little bit more well i hope you can get outside soon because <laughs> it sounds like you're snowed in up there and if we come up there in april i think it's late may i don't know what's early i think we come no. up to new york and if it's snowing up there man it's gonna be tough to get out but i hope yeah. to see you it was great talking to you you know it's a pleasure i had uh, uh, just an uh, amazing time talking with you and um again like i said before a long time ago in El Paso. Right. That's where the relationship already started. Right. And until this day, we've been remained friends. So absolutely. Forward I hope, to seeing uh, you again. Likewise. I hope there's another 22 years after the first 22. Man, you put a lot of pressure on me. <laughs> well, we're basically <laughs> your, the same not, age. <laughs> not yourself. Uh, definitely <laughs> me, not you. <laughs> All right, my friend. Great to catch up with you. Good luck this season. Hope everything goes well. And again, uh, hopefully we'll see each other in New York in a couple months. Sounds good, buddy. Good talking to you. Have a good All night. Right. Scott Coolball joining us on Pollock on Point. Stay tuned for our next episode.